Every single person who is alive, no matter what they believe, whether you believe in God, no matter what your worldview is, you have a vested interest in the quality of your life. I don't care what you think, what you believe, what kind of home you grew up, Buddhist, Catholic, atheist, agnostic, doesn't matter. You have a vested interest in the quality of your life. And my guess is you have a vested interest in the quality of the lives around you, the people you love. Huge portions of the Bible make that assumption. Instead of starting by trying to prove their premises, then come to agreements about basic assumptions about what's real, about reality. Instead of, instead of that, they just start working from the assumption that we hold a bunch of stuff in common as humans that don't need to be argued in favor of. We already believe them. You with me? Like Proverbs, for example. The assumption of the entire book of Proverbs is here is a, here is a, a grouping of wisdom for improving the overall quality of your life. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, very, very, very famous, right? The Beatitudes, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. That's him taking for granted that every human has a vested interest in the quality of their life. And he's describing the good life. What is the good life? The Sermon on the Mount describes the good life, the happy life, the blessed life the life that has wholeness to it, the life that has the most meaning. Because something, I don't know if, you've been around enough, so you know. Life is something like unbearable suffering. You with me? I don't care how much money you have. I don't care what, what class, what, what race, what gender, what country you live in. Life is something like unbearable suffering. Yes. We like to play games, divide up society into groupings and classes and imagine some sort of big conflict and struggle for who is, whose life sucks more than the next person. But it's all stupid because every human is mortal. Every one of us is going to die. Our body is going to assume room temperature and everything we've done worked for, everyone we've loved, everything we've cared about will be gone. Death is this cloud hanging over every human who's ever lived. And a little bit of money doesn't improve the situation. A little bit less oppression doesn't improve the situation. A little bit more justice does not really, at the end of the day, improve the situation. It's the unspoken truth as we scramble to scratch and claw to somehow improve the quality of life for a moment before it's swallowed up in meaninglessness. And so Jesus comes into this context, the Bible comes into this context saying there actually is a good life. There actually is a good life. A lot of people, I think, look at what Jesus said and they imagine he's talking about a future political kingdom that Israel was meant to receive, but since they missed it, somehow the kingdom is now uh, you know, delayed even further into the future. 
Here's a big word for that. That's called dispensationalism, and I happen to hate it, and a lot of Christians believe it. But when Jesus came, he said, the kingdom of God is here now. It's available here and now. You can enter into the kingdom here now and live the blessed life here and now and actually live free of death. I say this all the time. Religion is a way of avoiding God. Rebellion is a way of avoiding God. Rebellion says, I don't trust God. I don't think he, ha- he knows what's best for me. I don't trust that he has my interests at heart. So I have to take matters into my own hands and I have to do what I think will make me happy because I don't trust that what he says is really for my good. Rebellion, it's a way of avoiding God. Religion is a way of avoiding God. If I give God this and this and this, maybe I won't be in trouble with him. Humans are incredibly religious. So basic assumptions I have about humans. Everyone cares about the quality of their life. And most humans are sort of religious. Even if they're atheists. Because atheism is another way of using an intellectual exercise to avoid dealing with God or avoid encountering God. If I accuse him of wrong and I can catch him in a, in a, in a series of, of wrongs, then I will be justified. Well, that's an, interesting, that's an interesting form of righteousness. But Jesus says his kingdom, what, what's a kingdom, you guys? You, Kate's a queen. I'm gonna enter her queendom and violate her space. I've entered her, that's her queendom. She has rights over herself, doesn't she? She has authority, and you, you would have had a right to slap my hand right off your shoulder, or invite me in for a hug, because you are in charge of your queendom. God's kingdom is the range of his effective will. It's not something that will come later in human history, it's the range of God's effective will. I shouldn't look over there. If they're being distracted, then I'll be distracted because I'm the sort of person who gets distracted easily. (laughs) You can enter into the range of God's effective will right now. That's the gospel, by the way, according to Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. You know that's the gospel he preached, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's available. It's available now. You can enter into God, the range of God's effective will right now. We call it home. We call it coming home. He's a father. We are wayward children. We are coming home, coming back into the range of his effective will, where his will is being done in our life again, like it was in Genesis 1 and 2 again. And like the birds know how to migrate with no one showing them a map, and like the fish know how to go back where they first spawned, even though it's crazy to me. There's not roads in the ocean, but they find their way from the ocean to the rivers, to the streams, to the tiniest little place where they respond. How do they know? They have knowledge by they have knowledge biologically instantiated into their consciousness that they didn't learn. Let me translate. They know stuff in their bones. And you and I know in our bones that there is a home for our heart. Amen. We know in our bones. And we know the smell. You know grandma's house has a smell? Everybody knows this, right? When you show up at grandma's house and grandma's cooking, 
you know the smell of her house and you know the smell of her cooking and there's no place like it. Our soul knows the smell of the Father's home. There's something biologically instantiated into humans that we know what Eden feels like. We know what it is to be righteous, which is to be completely right with God. We know the way home, but we've lost the way home. And Jesus says, hey guys, I have good news. I'm here, I'm here, and because I'm here, availability for you to come back home and enter the range of God's effective will is open to you right now. You don't have to wait to die to go to heaven. Heaven can come back upon you, among you. And you can be so transformed. See, this, this, here's the thing. The Beatitudes, the, 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 the Sermon on the Mount. I was taught that the Sermon on the Mount is impossible for us to live, and the only reason Jesus gave all those commands was so that we would know how impossible it was. Despair of ever trying give up and say, I guess I have to be saved by grace. In other words, not really transformed, not changed, not formed into his likeness, not become a different kind of person. No, no, no. I stay as I am, try hard to fulfill a, a, a set of, of teachings that are exactly what God will always do. God doesn't need laws, right? Does God need a law that says don't lie? Or does he just not lie? Does God need a law that says be kind or is he just kind? Does God need a law that, that, help, that, that teaches him to care for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the refugee and feed the animals and send the rain on the righteous and the wicked? Does he need to be told what to do? He does what is right out of who he is. So let's imagine the teaching of Jesus comes to you and then you, as, as an untransformed person, try to follow his teachings. What's gonna happen? It's not gonna go so hot, is it? You're gonna stumble, you're gonna fall. You might begin to resent the very God you're trying to love. In fact, if the harder you try, the more you become aware of your failings and the more condemned you feel before God, the less beautiful he will appear to you. And so ironically, the command that says love God and love people becomes the source of great condemnation and builds resentment in your heart to where you absolutely begin to hate God. Are we tracking? So religion ends up being a way of avoiding God, just trying to get, just pay, what, what, what God tax do I have to pay? In the medieval, uh, there was a medieval theologian called Anselm. And Anselm was trying to figure out, why did Jesus die? Why did, why did Jesus become a man and die? And he, he decided that we're cosmic rebels, God's really mad, and that somehow we owe God a debt because we've sinned. So he said, well, we owe God a debt. We've sinned against an infinite God, so a human can't really pay back with obedience since we already go owe God obedience. We can't really pay back for our disobedience through further obedience, which that's already owed. It's a net zero if we obey. Hey, net zero, remember that? That was a wet, that was, yeah. So what are we gonna do? 
And he says, we can't pay the debt because we're just humans. We owe an infinite debt because God's infinitely glorious. We screwed up big time. God's really mad. By the way, I'm not preaching what I believe. I'm telling you what Anselm believed. And so Anselm says, what am I gonna do? He goes, you know what happened? God alone could pay the debt, so Jesus took on flesh so that he could be God to pay the debt because if he, if he is punished instead of me, then he being God could, could, be, could pay an infinitely worthy sacrifice and as man, he could do it for us. So this is what Anselm concludes. What will I bring God so that he'll be forced to accept me? By the way, I'm not telling you what I believe. I'm telling you what someone who lived 500 years ago believed. Actually, 1,000 years ago. Well, 900, yeah, 11, 11th century-ish. 900-ish. He says, I'll bring God my belief in his son. I'll, I'll go up to God and I'll say, you have to accept me because your son paid, the, paid my penalty and you can't punish me twice. Ha ha. Anselm's trying his hardest to make sense of the mystery of the cross. But here's some stuff he really screwed up. You don't, by nature, care. You don't care that you sinned against the Lord by nature. By nature, you hate God. You love only you, and you only love the people around you in as much as you think they love you back. If you love me, I'll love you. You treat me good, I'll treat you good. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. It's called pagan love. It's called Gentile love. It's what Jesus takes for granted is normal among pagans. I'll love God if he'll love me. I'll love you if you love me. You treat me good, I'll treat you good. We ain't got a problem. But so help me, cross me, and I'll shoot everything you love. That's humans. Anselm's wrong. We're not trying to come home and God's really mad, needing placation. He's got the whole gospel backwards. Anselm. John chapter 4, Jesus is hanging out with a woman, which is not supposed to do, but he does. He's hanging out with a Samaritan woman, which he's not supposed to do because they hate each other, supposedly. And he leads her to the Father. And one of the things he tells her is that the day is coming when those who worship won't worship in Jerusalem according to these human understandings of God, but they will worship in spirit and in truth. And then he says this, for the Father seeks this kind of worshiper. And that one word changed my life. The Father seeks. Anselm, what are you doing? He looks at the cross and says, I'm going to use that, and then God will have to accept me. What are you talking about? That's what the Father's doing, so you'll accept him. This is the Father. You know how many times in the New Testament Paul says that God proves his love? Proves? The cross is the Father proving his trustworthy, loving, merciful nature toward you. Anselm, what are you, you, you're not going to offer the Father Jesus. and He's offering you Jesus, Anselm. He's pursuing you. He wants you. He loves you. He's in hot pursuit of sinners who don't love him back. He's trying to bring us to the place where we become different people. 
Here's a big problem I have with the American gospel of legal forgiveness but no transformation. Untransformed people would hate heaven. Isaiah gets one moment in the manifest glory of God and he falls down and says, I'm out. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. The, 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 the seraphim, the cherubim, they constantly receive and perceive the beauty of God and they're constantly in a state of adoration and worship. It's the fuel for the engine of their spirits. But Isaiah says, if, if, if I'm gonna be in here, I'm gonna have to experience some major changes, y'all. There's some stuff that's gonna have. What's the first thing humans did when we sinned? We fled from the Lord's presence. He didn't flee, flee from ours. And we've been taught in church that he's too pure to behold evil. Now that's backwards. Evil's too weak to behold his purity. He's plenty strong enough to behold evil. He does it all day long. Where can, he, where can we flee from his presence? If I go down to the depths of hell, are you there? Psalm 139, is he there? Is there any place worse? Is there any worse evil? He doesn't flee. The one time I was freaking out because my teacher made me watch a, a, a terrible documentary about Rwanda, the Rwandan genocide. I could not function. My teacher kept coming around, tapping me and saying, you don't have to go through this. And I was like, these people lived and died through this. Of course I have to watch this. Are you crazy? So I refused to allow myself the escape hatch. of a, I mean, if I can't handle a video, what's going on with my lack of compassion? I've changed my mind since then. My wife tries to tell me horrible things. Just yesterday, I said, Carrie, if I have no control over it, no power over it, I don't need it to destroy my inner calm because if I have no inner calm, how am I supposed to be any redemptive value to my immediate circle I do have influence over? But anyway, so I go home and then this documentary of Rwanda has absolutely messed my soul up, right? Now what am I doing? I'm accusing God. God, where were you? God, what were you doing? How could you let that happen? And you know what he said to me in the basement? He said, Tim, you watched one short documentary and this is how you feel. How do you think I feel? I can't, I don't look away all day, every day. And this is what he said. I, I watch how y'all treat each other every day. He takes in all the mistreatment and he loves us more than I could ever care. He flipped it on me. I was mad at him and he's like, hold up, hold up, hold up. Do you understand the suffering my heart feels every day? You watched one short documentary and you're accusing me? It's not me. It's how y'all treat each other. Okay. But we have to become, to be the kind of person, to be the kind of person. See, I was just about to say that one of the problems I have with the American gospel, legal forgiveness without transformation so we get a little, little hall pass, a little ticket to heaven that says, hey, I said the right prayer, so now I'm okay with dying. And I'm sure whatever, I don't know anything about God, don't love God, don't care to know God. I've checked that box off. Now I can avoid him the rest of my life because I'm no longer as afraid of death. Still terrified of death, holding on to life, not trusting him in life, and don't really know what that will be, or do I care but at least I'll avoid him because I said the right prayers, went to the insurance salesman and bought a nice policy through praying a prayer. 
And my argument is, I doubt you actually got saved. Because heaven is only for people who delight in God, not people who agree with an idea. And what's the difference between genuinely believing Jesus and theoretically agreeing with some doctrine? Jesus wants to transform what we know about the world, right? In the garden, Satan didn't hit Eve with a stick. He hit her with an idea. And what was the idea? You can't trust the Father. I mean, yeah, you're right. But you can't trust what the Father told you about that tree. And ever since then, the issue has been, can you trust God? And you and me too, Bunny. Because the story ain't about blaming them. It's about what all of us did. We are them. I just hope you guys appreciate how funny that is. Okay. So, so there's the, the, we, we, get in this ch- we get in this church mode, and there's what we believe with quotes around it. Then over here is what we actually know about the world. Here's what we know. What we know is what we actually, how we navigate reality is by what we know. We almost are playing a game half the time, right? We go to church and we play this alternate game, like an RPG or, or, or a, you know, a, a board game that's real deep and, and you know, three or four hours deep where you get into this imaginary world and you know how to play the game. You know how to be in church and say the right things according to this language game and this theoretical map of meaning. It's a theoretical map of meaning. But most of us, I think, have a broad difference between what we believe religiously, spiritual belief, and what we know. What we actually believe about, know about reality. But Jesus would like us to fuse what we believe with what we know because he's speaking out of what he knows about reality. And when what we actually say we believe but don't becomes what we know and how we navigate reality, now the truth can transform our being. Again, Satan didn't hit her with a stick, he hit her with an idea. And because the idea landed and became what she knew about the world, it drove her behavior. Because ideas have consequences. Was that too complex? And my conviction is this. At the center of the gospel is a God in hot pursuit of you and I who's primarily concerned with who we are and what we are becoming. And so his gospel is designed to deal with who we are and what we are becoming. And any gospel that doesn't bring transformation of life, something, something's wrong with it, something's missing. I don't know what's exactly missing, but something's missing. And I keep saying this, like Jesus didn't say, go into all the, all the world and make converts. Go into all the world and make disciples, learners, people who trust Jesus. Well, trust him for what? Trust him for his promises? Trust him for salvation? Trust him for healing? Actually, who cares what? The issue is trusting him. If you trust him, then all the what's will be filled out later. The issue is him, trusting him. If you trust him, you'll come to him with the problems, not not around him. 
Faith, again, rebellion avoids God, religion avoids God, faith goes right to God face-to-face, heart-to-heart, communion. And through relating to his love for us and receiving his undeserved, unearned love for us, he changes us. Okay, now the verse. That was the longest intro. Now the, now the real sermon will just be short. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's about who we are, who he is. He left who he was to take on all that we are because if he doesn't become it, he doesn't redeem it. Whatever he does not become, he does not redeem. So he comes to where we are so that we can be like he is. He became like us so we could become like him. He who is righteous on the cross took on our sins so fully that he extinguished its power, took on our death so fully that he actually descended into hell and on the third day rose victorious, which is next week's talk. But this talk is he died for you. And in his dying for you, he became your and my sin. He did it for who? He did it. What was his motivation? It wasn't random. No one takes my life from me, he says. The historical political interpretation says he ticked off the wrong people. He ticked the people off in power. And so he was murdered because he was in the way of their agenda. Well, that's all true. But he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. If I wanted, I could ask my father. He'd send a legion of angels. Y'all would be vapor. So... When you see them wrapping him in purple to mock him, putting a fake crown, not a real crown, a crown of thorns on his head and hitting him on the head with the crown of thorns on with a stick, you gotta know this is the one who holds all things together by his powerful word. This is the one through whom all things were made. How is he not provoked to anger? And in a moment of weakness, they are vaporized by the angels. He says, that's enough. Because one day he's coming down and he'll say that's enough to evil. And that's enough. He'll destroy the evil one with the splendor of his arrival and the breath of his mouth. It won't be hard. It won't be a fight. Right? Jesus and Satan are not opposites. Jesus and Satan and Michael are opposites. There is no equal opposite to Jesus. The Lord alone is glorious. You can't fathom him. So he becomes on the cross for us. Now, why? How could you do how, First off, how can you understand the incarnation? You know, our God, infinite God, contracted to a span, made weak, crying out for his mom to nurse and change him pat him to sleep and burp. That's just, I don't even know what we're doing right now. Like, I don't get that. That to me, if you can, underst- if you can comprehend, at least in a heart trust that it's true, the incarnation, this seems like similar math to me. If he can go that far, can he go all the way? And in some way inhabit your and my sin in such a way that God absorbs it? You ever been sinned against so much that you don't know how you're going to survive it? 
I don't feel like I have, but I know people who have, where you don't think you're going to be able to survive it. And the way through is forgiveness. The only way out is through, and the only way through is forgiveness. And what do you do when you forgive? When you forgive, you absorb the wrong into yourself so that the hostility can end. That is what is happening in the cross, guys. It's not the father murdering his son. It's God in his totality, father, son, and spirit, all three suffering to absorb the worst sin could do. To put an end, in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. Now, in the ancient world, whenever they would make a covenant, they would cut the animal pieces in half, they would set them on the various sides, and both parties making covenant would walk through the animal parts, communicating this, if I break my covenant, may I become like these animals. In Genesis 15, God asks Abraham to cut the animals in pieces, put them on the ground, and then he has a vision. And in the vision, a boiling pot floats through. A flame, like a, a, the, the symbol of God's presence floats in between the animal parts, but Abraham himself doesn't do it. Have you ever noticed that? If you violate this covenant, Abraham, I'm absorbing it. What? God's taking on himself our unfaithfulness, our sin, our death? Why would you do that? At the center of the gospel is love. This is unique among all the worldviews. All the other religions have this at the center of their message. Be good. And some Christians, by the way, are confused. And at the center of their gospel is be good. Because they're real confused. Again, you can't be good until you become the kind of person who is automatically good. At the center of the gospel is the kind of love that comes inside of you, transforms what motivates you. It changes the why behind your what and changes the who. So that when your who is changed and your why is changed, you're becoming the kind of person who will naturally and easily do the sorts of things Jesus taught. He'll so thoroughly transform you that not doing what he did is unnatural. And you go, well, why is it so hard? Well, it's hard to really believe. And sometimes it's easier to build our righteousness on our efforts, trust in that, stay untransformed. I don't want to preach too many sermons, but somewhere is this idea of looking worse, doing better. Martin Luther is wrongly misquoted. People love to find dead people and slander them. They're not here to explain themselves. Luther basically said, I'm okay with you sinning a little bit if it keeps you humble and dependent on Jesus. And people go, oh my word, he just said we're allowed to go thin. No, what he's really saying is self-righteousness is way more dangerous to you than a little awareness of your sin that causes you to be in touch with your weakness, dependent on Jesus, and honestly 
encountering him in the depths of where you really need to. Anything, because our life, our gospel is not be good people, try hard, be right. There's the right way to do things and we figured it out. Our interpretation of the Bible is correct and everyone else is a heretic. False teachers. Life's not, being, life's not found in being right. Life's found in Jesus. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is about being right. A lot of good it does us. We'll be right all the way in our disconnection and independence. So at the center of the gospel is forgiveness and repentance. And this gospel, says Luke, of forgiveness and repentance will be preached to all the nations. Why forgiveness and repentance, you guys? What's the opposite of forgiveness and repentance? Defending and blaming. Well, in the other order. Shame, blame and defend. Either repent, forgive, or blame and defend. If you show me a relationship that was on fire, and, but, but instead of having repentance and, and, and forgiveness, the two parties involved are functioning in defending themselves and blaming each other, you're showing me a relationship that's not built on grace, and the gravity of normal relationship will eventually drive such a wedge in between the two of them that there's no love left and there's no trust. And all there is is bitterness and resentment. There'll be a widening gap. So God has Jesus become as we are so that we could become as he is. In him, we become the righteousness of God. Lots of folk, I think, only think of that as a legal category. It is a legal category, but the righteousness of God is the actual essence and nature of God. And in Jesus, through his love being received, his presence comes inside of us. We don't have a list of rules that we agree to. We have an indwelling Savior who we experience. You can actually believe the right things, do the right things. I'm going to say this and you're not going to like it. You can be perfect and perfectly obedient to the law of God and go straight to hell because it's never been about laws or being right. It's never been about believing the right things and doing the right things. It's about being filled with Christ, knowing Christ. Eternal life is in Christ. Of course, no one's ever done it. Just so happens we can't. But my point is, if you could be legalistically righteous, it would be a big fat zero. And even if you could, zero. It would bounce. I think I'm done. If we got to heaven and we were untransformed creatures, the grass would hurt our feet. The light would be so bright, we'd run from it. The songs would be ugly to our souls. We would flee. We would flee. We would flee. Unless we're transformed to love something other than we currently love. I say I'm done, then I keep talking. Don't do it, Tim. Who's got this mic? Love you guys. Can I say thank you, Tim? Uh, great teaching, right to the heart. Uh, the only way I can say it all is just say Jesus. Yeah. 
book of Hebrews says in chapter 10, 24, that we are to encourage one another towards love and good deeds. It says to spur. And who is love? Yeah, Jesus. That's who he is. Just say, spur each other on towards Jesus, towards Christ, and have that relationship with him. It's beautiful. Prayer team, ministry team, come forward. Um, if you need somebody to talk to, maybe you want some answers or questions, maybe you just need prayer, maybe you just need a hug, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, wait, wait, I gotta say one more thing. Here. I got all this Starbucks and I didn't drink it. That's okay. all I wanted to say. <laughs> God bless everyone. And, and this week, you know, look forward to this coming weekend. And we know Good Friday, we know. He has risen, is coming. He's been risen for over 2,000 years. But to celebrate that, it's awesome. It really is. It's awesome. Yeah. You're dismissed. Yes. Okay. You're almost dismissed. So this morning I got here, and I was sitting back there praying. And, um, and the Lord showed me three things. He showed me the walls come down, um, that that uh, hearts be healed, and burden and burdens be lifted. So, if you have any kind of walls built up, I like to pray for you. If you uh, need healing in your heart, I like to pray for you. And if you need any kind of burden to come off of you, I would like to pray for you. So, I just felt like that was a word for somebody today. So.